going back to this idea of multiculturalism, I think there's that, it's almost like politicians, they have a greater emphasis on what's different about us and they celebrate that, but they don't understand the complications that come with diversity. Because ultimately, if, you have a, if there's a great deal of cultural diversity, but you have that lack of, that's, that's sort of that unifying um, set of values, then you can, you almost have a balkanization process. And I think that's, that's quite problematic because if, that, if there's a lack of social trust in a diverse society such as ours, you, you almost lose public support for ambitious collectivist sort of endeavors such as the all-encompassing welfare state. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is a political writer and the author of an upcoming book called Manufactured Grievance, which we're both really looking forward to reading. Dr. Hibasan, welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. I've been meaning to have you on for a while. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know who you are, and we've been reading all your stuff and it's absolutely fascinating, tell everybody who are you, how are you where you are, what is it that brings you to be uh, sitting here talking to us? So, as you say, I'm a political writer. I'm the author of the upcoming book, Manufactured Grievance. In terms of my life, I was born in Hammersmith, but I moved to Luton at the age of one. So I've lived there for the past three decades. And I'm particularly interested in social cohesion, how to strengthen relations between the state and citizens, and just generally, how do we create a more cohesive country and how do we enhance democratic stability in Britain? And you've written a lot about race relations and the commentary that we've now seen about race. And there seems to be this interesting dynamic that's happened certainly in my lifetime in this country, which is kind of similar to your 20, 25 years, whatever, mm. uh, 30 years, where like the, the, the society seems to be making progress on the issues of race. And yet the conversation seems to be the opposite, like things are getting worse all the time. What have you made of the last kind of period of time during which we've seen that happen? Well, I think in terms of Britain, almost feel that there's been an importation of US racial politics. And I think you see things like a BLM demonstration in London where people are chanting, don't shoot uh, British police officers, even though the vast majority are unarmed and they support that model of policing. And I do think there has been that brainless importation of racial grievance politics in the United States, and that's being imported by the British identitarian left. I think in recent times, we have seen an explosion of racial grievance politics. I talk about the uh, industrial uh, complex, the grievance industrial complex, where you have a sector-wide orchestrated effort to present Britain in a way that I simply don't recognise. And you, and you say you simply don't recognise it. And you grew up in Luton, mm. which was, you know, from what I read, seems to be a hotbed of racial tension at certain points in the 90s. Well, I think Luton's had its fair share of problems. Um, <laughs> I think it's, it's the birthplace of the English Defence League. Yeah. So yeah. Tommy Robinson, for our American viewers, that's where all that Absolutely, sort of stuff yeah. is and happening. it's also had its fair share of issues with Islamist extremism. Mm. Yeah. Tensions, not just between the white population and the non-white population, but also tensions between different ethnic minorities, something that's not really discussed too much mm. when we talk about race relations in Britain. But also with Luton, you have that tolerant majority. Uh, people who are ultimately more interested in who you are as a person, what your attitudes are, uh, what, you, what you bring to the table as a, as, a, as a character. 
And I think that's generally the argument I make about England. I think you do have these hard left identitarians who really see the worst in England. Then you have hard right ethno-nationalists who ultimately frame English identity in terms of race and ancestry. But in reality, you have the mainstream. When they're asked about Englishness, what Englishness means to them, they focus. They, they ultimately frame it in more civic terms. It's about your social contribution. How do you contribute towards the well-being of your local community? Things such as paying taxes towards the funding of public services and national security. So you can see that that there is definitely a potential for a civic Englishness. And I think these sort of, these grossly simplistic caricatures of England are, are very unfair. And you say they're very unfair. And it was very interesting in 2020 when we saw that explosion of race-based politics, mm. the discussions, the anger, the recriminations. Do you think that's gone away? Or do, you, or do you think it's still bubbling under the surface? Oh, I think it's definitely there. I think it's still there. I think the issue is that for too long, I think when we're looking at England in particular, people have just thought that, oh, you know, Englishers, we don't really want to touch it as a concept, perhaps because they felt there was this cultural appropriation of the St George's flag, for example, by far-right organisations such as the English Defence League. But, you know, the reality of the matter is if you don't talk about those kind of things, there's a vacuum and radical ideologues will exploit that. I think in terms of when we're looking more recently, when you look at the Labour Party, more broadly the contemporary British left, I think that there's been a tendency to portray Britain in a way that even people who'd considered themselves to be anti-racist, it, it's alienating. I don't think they see Britain more generally as a kind of society where it's, it's you know, full to the brim with reactionary throwbacks, people who are deeply uncomfortable with demographic diversity. They might be uncomfortable with cultural diversity, which is obviously very different to demographic diversity. And they may feel that there are certain practices in Britain which are very much against liberal democratic values. I don't think that's controversial at all. Can but, you delve into that a little bit more, the cultural diversity versus demographic diversity and what you're talking about, uh, what you're hinting at there? Because it's I think that there's an interesting piece in there, but you're being a little bit vague about it. So give us some more specifics. No, I'll, I'll definitely, I'll, I'll flesh it out in more yeah, detail. So yeah. I think in terms of demographic diversity, when we're looking at the degree to which Britain is religiously diverse, racially diverse and ethnically diverse, that's very different to cultural diversity. Now, if you see that when we look at Brexit, for example, one of the strongest predictors for someone voting to leave the European Union was if they had a negative view of cultural diversity. Now, that doesn't mean that they're fed up with all the brown and black faces in the United Kingdom. It might be the fact that they feel that there's a lack of discussion on shared values. They may, they may feel that there's cultural practices which are not in keeping with what they consider to be traditional British liberal democratic principles. They may feel that um, principles such as democratic choice, the rule of law, these kind of things are being eroded as a result of uh, certain cultural practices. So you can see that there's a, there's a big difference between being uncomfortable with demographic diversity, which I think the majority of British people aren't, but they may have reservations over the degree to which we celebrate difference and how little we discuss um, things such as shared values, articulating an inclusive patriotism, or just more generally uh, generating a feeling or a sense of common purpose. That's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because I, I do feel that that's been happening. If you, I don't know if it's happening in wider society, particularly if you go outside of the big cities. I, I do think there's a very strong sense of social cohesion. But if you were to watch, let's say, the BBC or other mainstream media, the hyper-focus on... Uh, 
the things that we're all different in seems to be extreme. It seems to be that, that that is the only thing anyone's talking about. And almost there was a period of time, particularly I think around Brexit, when the idea of British values, was, which is what you're really talking about, was it's almost like if you talk to someone, you say, well, what are British values? They'd run away as if you're trying to recruit them for the EDL. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I think so. And I think that we need to have these kind of discussions because I think with an ethnically, racially and religiously diverse society, you need to have that common moral cultural standard to tie those different groups together. And I think that in recent times, I, don't, I think there's been an absence of moral political leadership on those kind of issues. But do, do you sometimes think, looking back at that, out, that outburst in 2020, that, okay, what the protesters didn't have, they weren't right about the issue, but that anger has to have come from somewhere. It couldn't have just come from nothing. If that protest hadn't struck a chord in some way, would it have existed? Do you see what I'm getting at here? There must be something else that people feel angry or frustrated about. Yeah, I mean, I think that in certain ethnic minorities, there is a high level of political disaffection. I think that's particularly the case with uh, British-born people of Caribbean origin. And I, th I think, for example, the racist murder of Stephen Lawrence and then the spying of his family by the London Metropolitan Police, the undercover spying, th that thing, th that kind of thing, it leaves... Uh, it, it, it costs a long shadow. And I think we have to really look at how, for example, we can improve relations between disaffected communities and local police forces. Uh, what, what are the kind of things that can be done to boost public support for robust policing practices such as stop and search? I think more generally, it, I, I always thought that the traditional English promise of equality of opportunity, I think there's more to be done. I think that there, there's plenty more that can be done in terms of creating a more meritocratic society a society where opportunities and rewards are allocated on the basis of merit. So I think there's definitely discussions to be had. And what, what are some of the challenges in that area? Because I would imagine one of them that I uh, have read about and I'm, I, I do believe is an issue is, for example, your name is Rakib Essan. If your name was John Smith, you'd probably have an easier time applying for jobs by sending in a CV. We have seen evidence of it. Is that the sort of thing you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, but I think also if you're someone of Car if you're Black Caribbean origin and your name is John Powell, I mm. think you may be at an advantage if you're, as opposed to if your name was Constantine Kissin. Yeah. So it's not quite as simple as being a racial penalty no. as such. You can say it's more of a cultural penalty because Constantine Kissin is more culturally distant, you could say, to a traditionally English-sounding name. He keeps telling me that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm right. So I think those kind of discussions where you talk about maybe introducing more name-blind applications, mm. at least that, may be more, that, that might be more of an equaliser in terms of the equalization of opportunity. And I think that's quite important. It's not so much about an equality of outcomes. It's more about trying to create a more fairer process, yeah. especially in the realm of employment, which as you know, ultimately, you know, employment is the, it's almost the core of one's life. Essentially, it gives you a sense of structure, sense of pride, um, also helps to put food on the table as well and pay the bills. So I think those kind of discussions are really important. I don't think, I think we should guard against complacency. While I say that, you know, overall we're a tolerant, anti-discrimination, pro-equality country, that's not to say that we can improve on those fronts. But what I don't agree with is ultimately a vilification of British society and its public institutions. And I do think the more aggressive elements of the BLM movement, they have been responsible for doing that. And that in turn undermines the broader anti-racism cause because it alienates people who do care about racial equality, 
but they don't share that warped interpretation of British society and institutions in both the public and private sector. And why do you think these people have been given a platform? Like, you see the same faces rolled out again and again and again. Some of your favourites. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but, but why is it we consistently give these people a platform if, as you say, their, their view of British society is warped? Well, I think in certain public institutions, uh, mainstream public broadcasters such as the BBC, I do sense there's a great deal of white guilt in those institutions, if I'm being perfectly honest. And as, as, as you've said, you see these same voices and they recycle their identitarian nonsense, which is deeply divisive. And I think all too often ethnic minority voices, I think that there's improvements being made on that front, but ethnic minority voices who might provide a more optimistic, positive vision of Britain and rather providing a positive interpretation of race relations, how we're doing in, um, when it comes to matters of racial equality, I think for a while they were being sidelined, if I'm being perfectly mm -hmm. honest. But obviously you have GB News, you have people there such as Mercy Moroki, Aminaya Fulurin Aman, who, who at least provide a more balanced perspective. And I think that's really important because you don't want uh, identitarian leftists seizing the narrative when it comes to race-related issues in Britain. Mm. And your book is called Manufactured Grievance. I want to talk about the grievance industry a little bit because... You're wondering how to get into it. Uh, absolutely, mate. <laughs> I'm, I'm determined. It's very profitable. So yeah, Jews kind you. of struggle in that for some reason. But anyway, um, I, I'm, I'm just curious... A lot of people may not be familiar with this idea or they might find it inherently difficult to accept. But it seems quite obvious to me at this point, and tell me if you agree with this, that th there are a lot of people, and I don't even blame them because human beings respond to incentives, right? If you can get a good job and with a great salary and social status and newspaper inches and, and whatever, by having a particular mindset, it will attract people to, to, to doing that. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, and so it does seem to me like there are a lot of people who just don't want things to get better. No. In the short, no, they don't. And I think that when I talk about the grievance industrial complex, I'll give you an example. The Runnymede Trust, back in 2000, they set up a 23-strong commission to look at the issue, racial equality issues in Britain. And it concluded that Britain had some of the best race relations uh, in Europe. It said that it had a much more relaxed society than other uh, multi-ethnic democracies such as France, Germany and the United States. And they said that the idea that racism was widespread in Britain was a skewed and partisan view. Now, the Runnymede Trust now this year published a report which said that England suffers from systemic racism uh, that ultimately limits the enjoyment of BAME rights, an acronym that I think is absolutely hopeless, by the way. Maybe we can discuss that later on. Uh, ultimately portraying England as some sort, kind of systemically racist hellhole. So you can see that the same institution from the year 2000 to now is essentially saying that our country has descended from being an internationally reputable model for race relations to systemically racist hellhole. Now, that's a scorching hot take that I don't think many people would share at all. And I do feel that institutions, perhaps because they see that there's an opportunity for financial profit, uh, combined with this moral gra grandstanding. So ultimately, it's impressing people in their particular sector, in their social circles. And you also have that financial incentive to present what I would consider to be a fundamentally warped interpretation of race relations in the UK and how well we're doing in terms of racial equality. But crucially, when it comes to complex uh, forms of social and economic disadvantage, 
all too often they'll put racial identity at the heart of it, when I think there's other very important factors at play, such as internal cultural norms in particular communities, um, attitudes towards female empowerment, uh, also even things such as where you live. I think geographical inequality, we live in one of the most interregionally imbalanced um, economies in the world. I think family breakdown is something that many people simply don't want to touch with a barge pole. I think the great advantage you could have in modern day Britain is if you are raised by two loving, attentive parents. Now that's not, that, and the, but then people portray that as some kind of vilification of single parents, not at all. But I don't think we should shy away from the fact that there's particular family structures which are more strongly associated with positive youth outcomes, whether it's school attainment, cognitive development, mental well-being, um, being less likely to be involved in the criminal justice system. I think those are the discussions we need to be having when it comes to matters of inequality in Britain. Why don't we have those discussions? Well, I think a lot of people, that they just like being politically sensitive. I think as opposed to grappling with the main issues, um, th they want to be liked. I think that's what it is. And I, I, don't, I don't really care for being overly popular or being well-liked. Because I think if you want to be a, a serious actor, that wants to tackle the root causes of inequality, then you're gonna to have to face up to some uncomfortable truths. Now for me, Britain, I think there's many wonderful things about Britain. Britain is also an international hotspot when it comes to family breakdown. And as I've discussed, I think family structure can be hugely influential when it comes to youth development and future life progression. And I think that needs to be better reflected in British social policy, because I think all too often we, we're guided more by what's fashionable as opposed to the facts. And I think that's hugely problematic in the social policy space. Hey, Constantine, how are you feeling? Good. And your mental health? I'm from Russia, we don't have mental health. Well, in the civilized world, we talk about our mental health and how we're feeling about our place in the universe. In the words of my uncle Vlad, that is why we will crush you. Well, he's two months away from a breakdown. For the rest of us, there's a number one mental wellness app called Calm that helps you to negotiate the tricky modern world. It's okay to need help sometimes, and Calm can provide support. Calm has been really useful for me. You can clear your head with guided daily meditations, improve your focus with Calm's curated music tracks, and drift off to dreamland with Calm's imaginative sleep stories, narrated by soothing voices like Killian Murphy and Stephen Fry. Oh, Killian, soothe me. Man up. Drink vodka, feel better. If you go to calm.com slash trigger, you'll get a limited time offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of programming and new content is added every week. Over 1 million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds. Yes, Trigonometry fans get special limited time promotion, 40% off premium subscription, Take advantage of this amazing offer. Go to calm.com forward slash trigger for 40% off unlimited access to calm entire library. That's calm.com forward slash trigger. Do you think there's, uh, there's another thing here, which is we've bought into some kind of, to me, and I consider myself liberal, but we've bought into a form of liberalism that, that almost says, nothing is right, nothing is wrong, nothing is good, nothing is bad. It's just, hey man, just do whatever you want. And so if you are a, in, in a single parent environment, nobody should 
should ever say anything about what that can lead to on average, right? You're not talking about individual people. You're saying on average, a kid with two parents does better on average than mm. a kid with one parent, right? Yeah. It's not criticism of single parents, but it's just saying this is the reality. Yeah, what works best, essentially. What works best, right? Just in terms of practical outcomes. But, mm. but to say that is to judge, and we don't want to judge anything anymore. Well, for, for me, it's not making some kind of emotional judgment. I'm looking at what the evidence is telling me. Right. And I think that's something where the left, un uh, unfortunately, it's guided more by emotions and political correctness as opposed to actually acknowledging what the facts, what the realities on the ground. Now, when we talk about disparities, for example, one of the things that isn't talked about very much at all is the, dis is the huge differences between different ethnic groups when it comes to the kind of family structure that uh, young people are raised in. So when it comes to people uh, aged up to 15 years, um, whether or not they live in a lone parent household. So the figure for uh, dependents of Indian origin is only 6%. That rises to 63% for children of black Caribbean origin. And I think that kind of difference is bound to have an impact on the kind of life trajectory for young people in those particular ethnic groups. Now, BLM, of course, there's, some, there's many discussions to be had in terms of racial discrimination, ethnic penalties in the labour market, how we can create a healthcare system which is more responsive to the needs of a diverse population. But one of the biggest problems facing many black British communities is the lack of responsible male role models in those communities. And I think when it comes to issues of fatherlessness, that's something that, for example, Dr. Tony Sewell, who is the lead author of the recent um, CRED report, and interestingly, David Lammy used to talk about this a great mm. deal. Um, you know, in my early years of adulthood, he was my favourite politician. Because what he did, he managed to blend this strong commitment to social justice with, a, with almost like an honest, family-oriented traditionalism. And I feel that perhaps because he had some personal disappointments, such as finishing fourth in the Labour candidacy for the um, uh, mayoral, mayoral election in 2016, which Sadiq Khan obviously won. He finished fourth. He finished behind Diane Abbott. So that, that would be a bitter pill to swallow, especially for a man of his intellect. But it's a real shame that he turned his back on that politics, perhaps because he realised within the Labour Party that sort of tribal racial identity politics, radical social liberalism was very much, um, very much on the up. So perhaps that led to a disintegration or rather his abandonment of his own communitarian politics. And I think that's a real shame. It is a real shame because, like you said, he's, he's a very, very intelligent man and he could be a powerful force within the Labour Party. There's an article of yours that I found very, very interesting talking about Muslims in the UK and how actually the UK is probably the best place in the EU to live for Muslims. Could you go into a little bit about that? Well, I think it was interesting that you had the European Court of Justice. They recently um, ruled that Muslim, European Muslim women who wore hijab in the workplace... If, the, um, if their employers think that that is leading to workplace conflicts or that's affecting kind of, you know, relations with cl uh, clients and customers, that they could be fired. Now, that's something that would never happen in the United Kingdom. And you, you saw that after Brexit, you had these kind of intolerant Brit Britain versus tolerant Europe narratives from a band of deranged EU enthusiasts. That's the way I'd describe them. When in reality, Britain, when it comes, for example, the provision of anti-discrimination protections on the grounds of race, religion, ethnicity, Britain comfortably outperforms countries such as France. France has this sort of almost rigid secular universalism. 
uh, the idea that they'd even collect data broken down by race and ethnicity completely goes against that, that kind of political culture that they have in place. But that's obviously problematic because you can't identify issues of racial discrimination in various spheres. In Britain, we have a strong commitment to collecting that kind of data and then at least discussing you know, how we go about approaching those kind of issues. Uh, other countries such as Germany and Netherlands, I wouldn't say their provision of those anti-discrimination protections are as robust as in the case of the UK. And I think that when it comes to British Muslims in particular, I feel that they're poorly represented by identitarian organisations who, quite frankly, they tap into that religious grievance politics, I would say. So three in four British Muslims feel that Britain is a good place to live as a Muslim. And the main reason they provide for that is freedom of religion. What's interesting is that it's the mainstream who are less likely to think that Britain is a good place to live as a Muslim. I don't know whether there's some kind of white saviour complex um, at play there, very possible. But I do feel that, you know, personally, as a British Muslim myself, I do think that Britain is a very good place to live as, you know, as, you know in terms of, you know, practising your religion. Uh, it's also worth noting that many Muslim people who live in Britain, they originate from countries which are deeply unstable in a social sense. There's rampant institutional corruption. Uh, there's a great deal of, you know, community tensions, but also between different Muslim denominations, Islamic denominations. So when you compare that context, that, that, you know, that kind of social disturbance and those political problems there, naturally they have a positive orientation, they have a positive feeling towards British democracy. But all too often these kind of things are not discussed about at all when we talk about the place of British Muslims in their own country. Well, Rakib, speaking of that, and it'd be interesting to talk about this, you being a practicing Muslim, because one of the things that people sometimes, and, and admittedly, these are people who are on the sort of hard right, but this is one of the things that they often talk about, that British Muslims struggle to integrate, and they'll point at things like the polls which show British attitude, Muslim attitudes to homosexuality, to women's liberation, and all this sort of stuff. Where do you sit on all of that? Like, how well is, is the Muslim community, if one exists, integrating and has integrated into British well, society. Well, I think that that's the thing there, that all too often is presented a British Muslim right. community, but yeah. it's so incredibly diverse mm. in terms of social values, um, political affiliation, uh, more generally when it comes to issues of female empowerment, uh, and just generally what is the place of British Muslims in their own country, that there is a great deal of diversity. Also just things with ethnicity and different religious denominations as well. I think that there's definitely discussion to be had in terms of, you know, what is the place of British Muslim women, for example. Um, because I do feel that, for example, when you look at levels of child poverty um, in certain Muslim-majority communities, I think female empowerment needs to be discussed. Because I think that when you see uh, various cases across the world, that is the most effective route out of poverty for certain groups and societies, empowering women. And I think those discussions need to be had in Britain. I think in terms of how British Muslims are caricatured, I think that on the hard left, you have, you know, that these people are deeply oppressed. Uh, they're really struggling in an in a aggressively anti-Muslim country, which has no respect for them. Does, you know, the mainstream doesn't like them whatsoever. And then you have the hard right ethno-nationalists who portray British Muslims as some kind of, you know, uh, almost like a fifth columnist block of disloyal uh, people who, who live in Britain. 
But in reality, they're, they're both couldn't be further from the truth. As I said, the, the vast majority of British Muslims, they're satisfied with British democracy. They think that Britain is a good place to live as a Muslim. Uh, generally high level, relatively high levels of trust in public institutions such as the NHS. And they, they also show high levels of British identification, which many people are quite surprised about, especially British Pakistanis and British Bangladeshis. They do show high levels of British identification. So you can see there that all too often you do have radical ideologues who dominate the conversation when they, they're not, you know, the arguments that they provide, they're not rooted in reality at all. And it's interesting you say that because you made the point that Muslim people aren't a monolith. And of course, mm. it's so true. Like I've got friends who are, who are Muslim and one of them is Indonesian. Now, obviously, an Indonesian Muslim is going to be very, very different to a Bangladeshi Muslim because their countries are completely different. Their societies are different. Do we need to start realising that, you know, when we talk about things like Asian people, black people, these terms are really reductive and pointless and they don't actually describe people accurately. Well, I think you'd even get differences between the average Muslim from Dhaka, which is the capital of Bangladesh, and Silet, mm. which is, uh, um, you know, Dhaka is a bit, a bit more modernised, a bit more developed, a bit more socially liberal, you could say, while Silet is, is more socially conservative, a bit poorer, more deprived, more agricultural. So you can even see within one Muslim country, you can see the, 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 the regional differences there. So I think we really need to have a discussion about you know, to what extent are people homogenizing very different groups? So after the CRED report came out, the Sewell report, I think even labels such as black and Asian, they're, they're you know, they're, they're bringing together vastly different groups. Mm. Uh, there's huge differences in kind of so, sort of socioeconomic integration, political behavior between British Indians and British Pakistanis, but they'd both be brought into a Asian category. There's, there's also very serious differences between people of black Caribbean origin and people of black African origin. You can see that even in terms of pupil performance in English schools, perception of race relations, to what extent do they attach importance to their faith, um, their general perception of British society and public institutions. So I think even those kind of labels, those sort of overarching racial categories, they're not particularly useful from a social policy perspective at all. Uh, Ricky, one of the things I was wondering th about in terms of having these conversations and why sometimes we as a society seem reluctant to mm. do is there was a moment, and I think that moment is in the past now, but there was a moment where multiculturalism was the thing, right? That was mm. the word. And everybody had to get buy into this idea. What do you make of multiculturalism and the attempt to kind of mainstream that as a thing. You're, yeah, you're smiling I mean, already. I think the state-sponsored multiculturalism is a disastrous model for, you know, sort of political and social integration. I think that... Explain that for people who, who may not, like, because some people don't sure. even understand the difference between a multi-ethnic society mm. and a multicultural society. Yeah. So give us the definitions and then tell us why you... I think a multi-ethnic society can have a strong, inclusive patriotism, which ultimately focuses more on shared values. Or rather, you have a... You almost say you have a, a socio-political effort to cultivate, uh, you know, a, a sense of common purpose... Uh, it's essentially trying to bring together different groups in society uh, almost around this common moral cultural standard. Under one umbrella identity. So I'm from Russia, Francis's mixed background, you are 
wherever you are, you're practicing Muslim, but we're all British. Yeah. Right. We all buy into that British identity. Exactly. That's a multi-ethnic society. Yeah. And I okay. think there just needs to be, at least you have discussions about what is that, what is at the core of that civic identity. Right. So I'll talk about things like social contribution, ultimately treating people fairly, irrespective of their ethnic, racial, religious background. And also having a discussion about what kind of cultural practices we, that shouldn't have any place in British society. And I think that that kind of those kind of discussions still. What are you hinting at? You keep saying this thing, but you never spell it well, out. Well, I think even things like um, if I had to talk about uh, FGM, female genital mutilation, I think this, that the inaction on those kind of issues for so long was it, it was embarrassing to be honest. I think that's a national scandal in in itself. So I think those kind of things that all, for, for far too long we've had political leaders they want to avoid those kind of topics. If they really care about you know, sort of you know the, the women's rights, for example, and I think that's very interesting. You have the progressive left; they talk about you know how they want to pr protect women's rights, how they want to strengthen them. But when it comes to those kind of sensitive issues, because they might be more prevalent in minority communities, all too often they don't really want to talk about it. They're deeply uncomfortable, and it's almost like their political correctness gets in the way of taking action on those kind of issues. But I think in going back to this idea of multiculturalism, I think there's that, it's almost like politicians, they have a greater emphasis on what's different about us and they celebrate that. But they don't understand the complications that come with diversity. Because ultimately, if, you have a, if there's a great deal of cultural diversity, but you have that lack of, that's, that's sort of that unifying um, set of values, then you can, you almost have a balkanization process. And I think that's, that's quite problematic because if, that, if there's a lack of social trust in a diverse society such as ours, you, you almost lose public support for ambitious collectivist sort of endeavours such as the all-encompassing welfare state. Now, I traditionally identify with the left. I do think that we should have an all-encompassing welfare state. But in order to sustain that and keep that in healthy condition, you need to have high levels of social solidarity. Mm. And I think that, that's... That's where my sort of traditional leftism, that's what it's rooted in. That sense that you need to have a stable national membership, you need to have high levels of social trust. And I think that naturally leads to immigration, for example. I, I do think that you need to have a fairly restrictive immigration system in order to sustain that welfare state. Because I think that if you, if you have this kind of it's a constant flux, in the sense, it, trust takes a long time to develop, especially when it comes, you know, when it's between different racial, ethnic and religious groups. So I really think that we need to have, I think on the left, the left needs to have more discussions about immigration. I think that all too often we've had these um, open border cosmopolitans who have almost dominated the debate um, on the left. And I think that's actually alienating for many traditional working class voters who may associate, well, traditionally associate themselves with Labour, but now maybe looking elsewhere to offer their electoral support. So I think ultimately with multiculturalism, it's, it's about trying to create a un, unifying set of values and tr almost you're being guarded against that celebration of difference. Because I think if you go over the top with that, it, it makes it very difficult to create a cohesive whole. And you've made a, a lot of good points. You talked about being on the left and yet wanting a policy of immigration that is restrictive. Mm. I mean, you can't say that if you're on the left. Most I people, I mean, I mean <laughs> I you can. just yeah, fucking did, mate. Just did, mate. What are you going to do about In your it? face, what are you going to do? But most people on the left can't do that because it seems to me a lot of leaders on the left are crippled by two emotions, guilt and fear. Mm. 
I, I think that, for example, when it came to freedom of, I think that was one of the reasons why we voted out. To be yeah. honest, I think that people said, "Oh, you know, this was driven by anti-immigrant sentiment." Well, also, I'd make the point that there, that there's, there was decent levels of Brexit support in ethnic minority communities, mm. especially p particularly well-off um, Indian origin communities in West London. Mm. Uh, I come from Luton, which voted 56.5% leave. Now, that wasn't purely white working class people voting to leave the European Union. They had decent levels of leave support across different ethnic and religious groups. I think that there is that acknowledgement in many communities that if you want to have a sustainable welfare state, you need to have high levels of social trust and social solidarity. So ultimately, it's almost a sense that if you want to support, if you're supportive of that kind of welfare state, that's not compatible with an open borders policy. And I think that's what many people on the left really struggle to understand. But I think many British people get it, but that's perhaps why Labour, you know, they're not very good at winning elections nowadays. Do you think they struggle to understand it or do you think they're just scared in order... Because if they do come out and talk about restrictive immigration, they'll be demonised as racist, whatever else, particularly, and they're more likely to be demonised as racist if they're white. No. I mean, look at... Sorry to interrupt, no, but, but just look at, like, Keir Starmer. He, when he first became leader, he tried to talk about the flag and, the, you know, whatever. Yeah. And he got creamed for that. So what are they What are they going to tear off him if he starts talking about immigration? Do you know what I mean? I, I think his problem is he's not very convincing when he expresses his supposedly patriotic really? feelings. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's very... It's not authentic. I no, think there's an yeah. authenticity problem there. I think that being the chief architect of the second referendum policy, I think that that really undermined his own reputation in pro-Brexit working-class communities who traditionally voted for the Labour Party. I think that when you look at those discussions, I think there is, a, there is an intellectual deficit on the left, if I'm being completely honest, but I also agree that even if people may feel that way, perhaps they don't feel comfortable in articulating that those kind of views because of the ideological leanings of their own social circles. That is a possibility. Mm. Mm. And doesn't that just mean, Ricky, because I see myself on the left as well, even though a lot of them probably would hate to have me on the left. Yeah, I'm sure they would. <laughs> you didn't have to say that, but anyway. <laughs> but um, don't you think that effectively what we're going to see now is a Conservative government that's just going to reign for generations? And I think that's poor for British democracy. Oh, terrible. Because I think you need to have a robust... You need robust intellectual opposition to keep the government in check. I think you almost have that kind of sclerosis, you know, the, the, the thing, m mistakes... Um, the, at the heart of government, behaviours which I, I'm not, I don't particularly support at the heart of government as well. Matt Hancock springs to mind. But I think those kind of things creep in when there's a weak opposition, yeah. if I'm being perfectly honest. Yeah. And even with all those things going on, the Tories continue to register leads in every poll. I think Professor Matt Goodwin, I think, I think it's nearly 131 consecutive polls now that the Tories have been ahead of Labour. Labour have been out of power for 11 years. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that the government is a particularly high-performing government. I think, I, think, I think overall, I think the main issue is that it's not so much that people are really supportive of the government, they love the Conservative Party, it's that they, just, that they dread the alternative. Mm. Mm. That's so true. Rakeem, let me ask you the devil's advocate question, uh, which is, aren't all, you know, I never pretended to be on the left. I, I've always thought of myself from the centre, but the sure, two sure. of you are. Mm. Aren't you just two conservatives who are really deep down, you just hate immigrants <laughs> and you're just sitting here going, well, I used to be on the left, but actually get them out. Do you know well, what I mean? I mean, I, the, the, it's, it's unusual to be accused of that being a Bangladeshi and Indian <laughs> Muslim origin, but 
I think that ultimately you, you need. But there it. are people who would do that. They'd say you're a coconut and whatever. Yeah, absolutely. You're... I mean, I've heard it all before. Uncle Tom, coconut, race traitor, house Muslim, and all the rest of it. It's all war off a duck's back for me. I couldn't care less, because ultimately I know that what I'm saying is quite well. It's relevant. I think it's necessary, and I think when you look at you know myself and Francis, I identify with the left. One of the first things I did when I obtained full-time employment was join a trade union, which I think is a fairly leftist thing to do. Um, I think that, as I said, I support an all-encompassing welfare state. I care a lot about the NHS in terms of being responsive to the needs of a diverse population. Um, I also want to see a fairly active state in, in terms of trying to develop public infrastructure in some of the poorest parts of the country. I think these are quite classic bread and butter leftist issues. It's just that when it comes to these, the sort of racial grievance politics, the reality is that the traditional British left is rooted in social solidarity. So I see that racial grievance politics as a betrayal of traditional Labour politics. And I don't think that's a particularly controversial view to offer. And do you think your argument is going to win? Because the worry I have with the racial grievance stuff mm. and they found a way because they tried it with feminism and it didn't quite work because at the end of the day, you can't really separate women and men enough like to see them, for them to see each other as enemies. But with racial groups, we are hardwired mm. for tribalism. Mm. And I just I worry that. that this ideology is so, like, oh, it's right there in, yeah. in the gut. Do you know what I mean? And it preys on your worst instincts. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, if you yeah. teach people that over time, I just feel like it's going to be hard for your very reasonable point of view mm. to triumph over that thing that hits you right in here. Do you know what I mean? I don't think my arguments will win on the left. I'd, I'd like to see it win on the left, if I'm being perfectly honest. I think that's a big part of my book, Manufactured Grievance. I want to offer the left a way out in terms of being a more mature and inclusive force in British political society. I'm not sure if that will happen, but I think my arguments will win. win it, it, my kind of arguments would win out in the mainstream. And I think that's important. And I already said that I think the mainstream is more tolerant than many people on the left portray them to be. I think that they are quite concerned. Well, they're concerned about rooting out discrimination wherever you find it, whatever kind of discrimination that is. But in terms of would my arguments win on the left, I'm, I'm not particularly sure. But I do see, I, I see people, for example, Paul Embury, the kind of arguments he makes, I think they're very important. And I do feel that kind of blue Labour tendency, those kind of writers, um, Adrian Pabst would be another one. I, I think they, they bring important discussions to the table. They bring important points to the table. But if you're talking about, I almost feel that there's a, there's a battle for the left soul, in a sense. I'm not sure how that will pan out. Uh, but I think when you're talking about my kind of arguments, I think ultimately it's about, you know, whether or not oh, I win here or I win there, I think it's ultimately portraying, you know, what, what I think about Britain, what I think would be a positive way forwards when it comes to race relations and community cohesion. And then I'll let people discuss about it. Hey, Francis, do you want to learn another language? No, mate, I'm English. If foreigners can't understand me, I just shout at them. Think about it, you could learn how to say penalties in Italian. Leave it. But if you do want to learn another language because maybe you want to have new experiences, live in another country, or maybe you just want to open your mind. My mind's open enough. If I open it up any further, my brain's gonna hurt. This is true. But Babbel's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. 
They design their courses with practical real-world conversations in mind. Sentences you'll use in normal everyday life. Sentences like, Oi Pedro, dos veces, por favor. Thank you, Francis. And Babel's courses have been proven to be scientific. And Babel's courses have been proven to be scientifically effective across multiple studies. Their 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. It's available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across all devices. You can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. They've also got their own podcasts, so you can brush up on your French and Spanish on the go. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. And before you know it, tú vas a poder hablar español absolutamente perfecto. No, I mean Gary. Right now, Babbel is offering our listeners six months free with a purchase of a six-month subscription with our promo code, which is, of course, Trigger. Go to uk.babbel.com slash play and use promo code Trigger for an extra six months free. That's uk.babbel.com. B-A-B-B-E-L dot C-O-M forward slash play promo code trigger. There's something that I really wanted to discuss with you and you brought it up there about the, let's call them what they are, the racial slurs that have been held against you by people on the left. Sure. Number one, why does that happen? And number two, why do people not think that is racist? Because... If it came from the mouth of, you know, a white van driver, whatever else, to use a cultural stereotype, you'd be like, well, that's racism, and you'd be right. But why is it acceptable, just because someone's got pronouns in their bio, to do it to you, and that's fine? Because they think they're moral guardians. They, they see themselves as moral guardians, so they can't even understand, you know, what they're doing is wrong. They, they, they don't believe it. And when you try to explain it to them, they still, they still don't really see what they're doing wrong at all. Uh, I think that when it comes to those kind of racial slurs, I think you almost see that kind of... I think, for example, with BLM, I think there's been an increase in intra-black animosity. Black people who don't, who refuse to toe the identitarian line. It's almost like their, their black authenticity is being questioned. And I think, you have, you, I think you also have that similar kind of dynamic in Asian communities, Muslim communities. If you have a particular issue on counter-terrorism, for example, counter-extremism, uh, social integration and discrimination more generally. You, you'll have, you know, one Muslim might accuse another Muslim of being a sort of house, house Muslim almost, trying to appease non-Muslim people. So you have that kind, it's really nasty, kind of the, the kind of tensions which have developed in recent times. And I, I do think there's been a normalisation of left-wing bigotry, which is going to alienate not just much of the sort of white British mainstream, but I think many traditional-minded ethnic minority people find it hugely problematic. It's interesting. And you bring up the, the tensions within, uh, again, I use, I hate the word community because I think it's just been abused to, to death now, but within the, the Muslim population in the UK, particularly in relation to counter-terrorism and, and all of that sort of thing. Uh, I mean, a, a question that I think a lot of people don't ask out loud, but, mm. but might ask it inside the privacy of their own home or inside sure. of their head is, why do have we had, and thank God it hasn't happened in the last mm. year or two, but why do we have, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, terrorist attacks on the streets of London that are almost inevitably always committed by someone who's a Muslim? Why is that mm. happening? I think that there's real issues in terms of social integration. I think that we have allowed counter societies to develop in particular parts of the country. 
and perhaps maybe because of political correctness or rather just the naivety that people who originate from fairly unstable countries, they'll just enjoy the freedoms that are offered within British democracy. Mm. I think there has been, it's almost like a misplaced idealism in, in a way. I think that people talk about you know, foreign policy, the invasion of Iraq, um, the war in Afghanistan. But I, I do think that we, it's almost a bit that the us and them mentality has been allowed to fester in, in particular communities. And I think that in a way that, that you've had this sort of model of multiculturalism, which has almost empowered these self, self-appointed community leaders one necessarily help from from a social cohesion perspective by the way that, that they've been empowered while you've had the more sort of patriotic reformist kind of forces in british muslim communities they've almost had the legs cut off under them really that they've just been left behind abandoned and i think that that's been a real problem when we're talking about you know the threat of islamist extremism I think that the, the, those kind of dan- dynamics have been, they just haven't been productive at all in terms of trying to create a more cohesive society. And I, I do feel that in terms of those discussions about the place of British Muslims, I think that the, the wrong organisations at times, they've been empowered in terms of you know, being platformed, being offered a, offered a view when, okay, you can offer them a view, but then just to completely alienate people who might have a different point of view, or rather not even give them the opportunity to articulate their, their more positive, optimistic view of Britain, I think that's been hugely, you know, hugely troubling to see. And do you think part of the problem is that in the media, and just in general, negative messages are in, in some ways far more powerful than positive messages? I think so. I, th- I think that my kind of views, maybe perhaps it doesn't, you know, attract much on, you know, social media, uh, social media engagement. I think that the media ultimately, it, it functions on hits, attention. And I think, I guess maybe outlandish, outrageous, almost extremist views, it, it gathers people's attention. Well, I think that more sort of moderate, optimistic, positive views, perhaps, you know, certain editors, certain channels, they're just reluctant to platform those views because they don't see it generating much attention to their outlets. So what would be a healthy conversation around the issue of Islamism Mm. in the UK and and, and, and in relation to terrorism? Because I just feel like if you were to watch the news, you wouldn't understand why anything is happening. That's the biggest problem with, with the media for me is it's lost its explanatory power. Right. If you watch an event and then you watch the coverage, you wouldn't know why it's happened. Like, I don't really think that I know why someone would go onto London Bridge near here and stab people to death. Right. I don't. I don't understand. I don't know. I think most people in this country don't really know. Right. So and 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 when anything like that happens, we're always told, "Well, Islam is a religion of peace," and most Muslims are peaceful. There's no question about that. Right. But. But why, why is that happening? Do you see what I'm getting at? Like, why is someone doing that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, you know, for different terrorist attacks, there's different motivations. Yeah. I think that we have to be honest that, you know, Islamist extremism at the heart of it is the construction of a global caliphate. Yeah. I mean, and then obviously <laughs> British liberal democratic values, there's not much space for British liberal democratic values. Yeah. And the, 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 there'll be various tactics and strategies that will be deployed to undermine those values uh, in, in infiltrate, you know, extremists would like to infiltrate and influence uh, the behaviour of public institutions 
what goes on within those institutions as well. And I, and I think ultimately, you know, and, and another important point is that just that sort of man-made legislation, there's not any place for that under sort of, you know, Islamist um, extremist mindsets. So, so these people, and we've had people yeah. on to talk about the the the, the, re, the battle between nation states mm. and the Islamists, absolutely in in the Middle East. So, so that's a really interesting point to get into. So, I guess what you're saying is, what these people want is to create a global caliphate, mm. and they want to undermine the, the liberal democratic structures of our society. Absolutely. But how does some stabbing someone on London Bridge do that? Well, I think that, as I say, in terms of the effectiveness of it, yeah, you know, that we could definitely have a we could definitely have a debate on that. Yeah, I think that, but in terms of when I'm talking about maybe almost a non-violent Islamism, mm. you can say, some people just say that you know the best way to do this is would be to intimidate non-Muslims, make them feel fearful within their own country. That sort of intimidation right. factor, make them feel unsettled, uncomfortable, and aware of our extremist presence. A violent terrorist attack can achieve that. But when I'm talking about, you know, influencing behavior within public institutions, state schools would be example. It would almost be, as you say, it's almost undermining those liberal democratic structures and values through taking control or rather influencing behavior within public institutions. And I think that all too often our sort of mainstream political leaders have been sleeping at the wheel, if I'm being absolutely honest. I think that when we look at the Labour Party, we've had politicians such as Nash Shah, um, who've talked about prevent, say that prevent alienates British Muslim people. And then there was a poll that showed that 56% of British Muslim people never heard of prevent. <laughs> so, they're so alienated, they I almost see that there's politicians, they're given that platform and they're just spouting you know, very divisive um, messages about how people relate to public institutions. When in reality, when they, if they were more optimistic, and I'm not saying that they should deny the existence of anti-Muslim prejudice. Anti-Muslim prejudice does exist in the UK. We should be, we should be honest about that, especially in the labour market, when it comes to employment, private rented sector, and you know, when it comes to housing, there's issues there as well. But to say, you know, prevent alienates British Muslims when more than half of British Muslims haven't heard of prevent, it, it does create that us and them yeah. kind of mentality. And then once someone is on that path, they can be very easily exploited, especially if they live in communities which are very much mono-religious, mm. fairly segregated. They don't have experience of you know, positive relations outside of their own faith group. And perhaps they're detached from mainstream democracy. Those people are they're quite easy to work on. They're quite susceptible or rather vulnerable to extremist influences. And once they're on that path, then it can be a very slippery slope. Islamist extremism. So I think those are the kind of processes at play when you're talking about how Islamist extremism is a problem in Britain. So Rahib, we've identified the problem. What's going to be the solution? How do we overcome this? How do we have a more cohesive society? Well, I think that I think equality. I think it's about ultimately building on what are sort of classic British principles. So I think equality of opportunity would be one. I think that's something that people in different ethnic and religious groups can really buy into. Most people don't aren't interested in equality of outcomes. They expect fairness, not favours. Uh, I think that there's obviously a discussion to be had in terms of creating institutions where they're not seen as the enemy, or rather it's an institution that's against me. I think that what we need to do, we need to find ways to improve relations between citizen and state. I think that institu we need to have institutional reforms 
where people feel more connected to those institutions. I think all too often they feel quite distant, top down. I think if, the, if, if the sort of leading officials in different public institutions, if they just did more community work, more community engagement, I think people, they just feel more of a closeness. And I think that provides a sense of rootedness and belonging as well in local communities. If they feel that the institutions in those communities actually care about them or they're interested in what they have to say. So I think those kind of things, and, and that can actually help to improve race relations over time as well. I think we've also been talking about Islamist extremism. But I think one of the finest things about British Muslim communities is how family oriented they are. I think there's strong forms of intergenerational cohesion um, within British Muslim communities. While I feel that one of the biggest problems in the mainstream is, for example, loneliness among the elderly and family breakdown. So I think those are the kind of things that maybe those kind of issues surrounding family breakdown we should talk about a little bit more. Yeah, you, well, you're absolutely right. And, and we'll, we'll ask you our final question then. But I actually think that is so true because the, the, some immigrant communities do have those values that British people used to have, but increasingly are starting to break down. There's and, erosion there almost. Yeah, there yeah. is. And actually that is something we could kind of share and learn from oh, each other. I think, absolutely. It's not just about oh, what, what you know, ethnic minority communities can learn from the white mainstream. Because if you see, for example, in terms of school performances, it's, it's pupils coming from ethnic minority communities who are performing particularly well, even if they're from deprived backgrounds. Mm. So the thing is, just, it's, it's talking, it's basically we need to have a discussion about what really works in Britain. And when we talk about those shared values, what we should be focusing on, I think we ultimately have to focus what are the issues we have in Britain which can affect different communities. It might affect certain communities more, but also what's working well in particular communities and how that can help to create a more, it's almost like a high performing country as a whole, you know, really boosting educational outcomes across the board, you know, enhancing levels of social stability, how we can say, you know, reduce criminal activity. I think just talking about how we can create a more stable society and a more, demogra a, a more democratically healthy society. I think those are the discussions that we need to be having, uh, need to be having. And that would be a really mature way forwards in terms of our race relations conversation and more generally how we can build stronger levels of social cohesion. Rahib, thank you so much for coming on the show. If people want to find you, where's the place to do that? Well, they can follow me on Twitter um, at R-A-K-I-B-E-H-S-A-N. Um, and yeah, I think, to be honest, if you just start typing my first name, I should pop up <laughs> fairly early on. Brilliant stuff. Thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Good Guys, well, thank... we've got one more question, don't we? Oh, yeah, of course, we've got one more question, uh, which is what's the one thing we're not talking about, but we really should be? I think it's something that I've touched on a fair bit. I think we need to talk about family structure and the importance of families in terms of, you know, youth social development. And I, I do feel that, you know, when we talk more generally about matters of equality uh, and inequality, rather, I think that the, the impact of social, uh, in terms of family breakdown and how that can impact, or rather how that can contribute towards many social ills in local communities, I think that needs to be discussed a little bit more in the social policy space. Very good. And the book, of course, is Manufactured Grievance. Indeed. I really look forward to reading it. When can people get it and where? So you can pre-order Manufactured Grievance on Amazon and it will be coming out in June 2022. So I'm working hard on it at the moment. Fantastic. Well, thanks for coming on. We're going to do a couple of questions for locals. But in the meantime, it's been a great pleasure. And thank you all for watching and listening at home. We will see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one. Or a live stream. And they all go out at 7 p.m. UK time or 2 p.m. Eastern Standard. Take care and see you soon, guys.
We hope you've enjoyed this incredible interview. Remember to subscribe and hit the bell button so that you never miss another fantastic episode. And if you believe that the work we do here at Trigonometry is important, support us by joining our locals community using the link below. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.